Chris Joyce, welcome to Resonate Podcast. Thank you very much, Ewan. Thank you very much for inviting me. No problem at all. What an amazing space you've got here. Yeah, I'm really, I love it and I'm really proud of it. And uh, it's the first time in my life I've had all of my equipment in one room. In previous years, I've had a, a teaching room, which wasn't at my house. I've had a studio at my house and I've had equipment that I take out on the road. So this is the first time everything has been in one room, under one roof. But the problem with that is now, my wife now knows how much equipment I've got. <laughs> is she thankful that the house is clear? <laughs> She's thankful the house is clear. She's uh -huh. thankful we haven't got an electronic kit in the bedroom. Nice. That got banished when I got this room. Mm -hmm. So all I have at home is a practice pad and some sticks and brushes and things like that. Mm -hmm. But no, there's a, a sort of saying, you know, it's like a... When I die, I hope my wife doesn't sell my equipment for the price I told her I paid for it. Uh. <laughs> well, it's very clear that this room is a complete life in music and everything that you have achieved is absolutely around us, which is absolutely quite inspiring. All the band posters that you have been in, all the people who you've met and all the signatures that you've had, and of course, the accolades on the wall. What made you choose Morecambe? over anywhere else to settle for? It's, it's a, an interesting question. I really, and uh, between the two uh, bouts of COVID and the lockdown period, where there was one where they said, right, you can go out again. Becky and my wife, we came over for a day, I think it was in July or something in, would have been, would have been 20 or something like that, I think. Mm. And uh, nice day, never been to Morecambe in my life. When I was a kid, I grew up in Manchester. We'd go to Blackpool for our holidays, mm -hmm. something like that, or North Wales, if it was, you know, if we went abroad, that was it. And I'd never been to Morecambe. Becky had never been to Morecambe. When we came in, it was like, like I said, it was a nice day. But it was just, I really liked the vibe of the place. I liked the bay. I liked the views, you know, the, the sunset in the evening was magical. And uh, next thing was, we started looking at properties around here and uh, ended up getting somewhere and uh, kind of got a house here or an apartment in October, would have been 21. Mm. And we weren't planning on living here full time. And we were coming over just at weekends or when we had a break for a week or something like that. But we decided that we just really liked it here and uh, moved over full time a year ago. So we're here now. I was, over, I was in, living in West Yorkshire before that and that's where I had my other teaching room. And I was teaching there for about 12 years or something like that. Nice. So in this past year, since I've moved here full time, I was traveling back to Yorkshire every fortnight because I kept a studio there to teach. Mm -hmm. But it was just becoming too much, the traveling every other week, and I was just building the business up here since when I opened this in July last year. And I just now want to put my time and energy into you know building this more here and starting to play more uh, with some local musicians, perhaps. I'm looking for those kind of opportunities at the moment. Brilliant. You'll definitely be spoilt for choice here because there are so many live bands and, of course, so many exciting new things happening as well in the area because you've got a youth music centre along the road, you've got the potential for a new practice venue in Lancaster, new performing venues are happening all the time. Right. So it's going to be a really good place. I think it's going to be quite up and coming. Yeah, well, I went last uh, year to uh, the Lancaster Jazz Festival yeah. and I saw an amazing gig at the Dukes. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a 25-piece 
jazz big band and I, I, for the life of me I can't remember the name which is shameful as a musician I'm sorry to whoever the <laughs> artist was uh, they were from Leeds and I think they might have been uh, ex-Leeds uni students or uh -huh. something like that because they were really accomplished musicians but yeah. they'd been influenced very much by Sun Ra mm -hmm. and Parliament mm -hmm. so it was quite a you know an eclectic bunch but they, they, they were a great great band absolutely there'll be so many festivals there'll be Lancaster Music Festival for you there's um, up and coming Morecambe ones as well you'll have Baylight around the corner so many different home yeah I went to see the Baylights last year that oh, was yeah. fantastic yeah yeah I was really, really impressed with it. And they're really bringing back spaces that have sort of lain dormant for so long. And I think that with the arrival of Eden Project as well, there's going to be some really good opportunities locally. And I think Morecambe already has been put on the map with its, you know, resurgence in dramas that have been coming here to film. Yes. And I think that there will be, I think definitely from 24 onwards, a real renaissance for the town. I think that you've come at a really good time. It seems like a positive time. I mean... There is a huge amount of poverty in Morecambe yes. and there's obviously been a huge and still is a drug problem, mm -hmm. I suspect. Mm -hmm. Not I suspect, like you can see it on the yeah. streets, when yeah. you look, particularly around the West End mm -hmm. and around the Arndale as well. Yeah. It's not that the place needs gentrifying, but it needs help on those levels. But I think yeah. it's the same in a lot of coastal towns around England. It is. I've got a friend of mine who lives in Ramsgate. Uh, he's been down there for 15 odd years. It's a record producer called Adrian Sherwood. Okay. If you ever heard of him, with a record label called On You Sound. Right. A lot of work with loads of reggae artists, Lee Perry, okay, uh, yeah. amongst other people. Yeah, he's performed up in Lancaster, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Even in those southern towns, it doesn't matter where it is, mm. a lot of, for some reason, people with drug problems went out to those places probably because it was not a bad place to live mm. and you could get your supply there mm -hmm. whether it's through the local chemist or whatever it might be you're on the doorstep of some really good music organizations as well who do a lot of work um in really helping people to gain access to music yeah. and i think is that is that important for you in the drum school today? absolutely yeah 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 i mean you know i'm now at an age where i can help put things back into society and you know mm -hmm. do some positive things on those levels how have you found that transition of how it was for you when you were starting out compared to how you see emerging and young musicians now it's a good question it's a tough question because i think the industry is unrecognizable now mm -hmm. from my perspective mm -hmm. you know when i was a teenager and i started doing gigs when i was 15 you'd go and play in the local pub we'd get playing in working men's clubs we'd do all anything and everything we could we, I mean I was just playing with a covers band doing rock and roll songs and stuff like that we probably did two gigs every week like Friday and Saturday and sometimes we'd do Sundays as well so maybe three gigs a week and because there was working men's clubs there was British legions there was all these kind of venues that you know where people had got the main attraction was the bingo mm -hmm. the band was kind of secondary but it was part of the entertainment and then often yeah. there'd be a you know a resident organist, organist and drummer mm -hmm. uh, and then these kids coming along playing rock and roll on the stage but people who'd like to dance at the end of the night and had a few pints lost or won at the bingo mm -hmm. and then have a band on and that was like kind of an apprenticeship almost in learning to play in front of an audience getting out there playing live and then in sort of 76 
for me, you know, I had massive musical influences from rock and roll. I'd gone through all sort of the Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, all of those things that I was into at the time. Mm -hmm. But then it was like punk came along in 76 mm -hmm. and turned the kind of thing upside down. As far as perspective went, if you're outside of it as a musician, I think for record companies, it was just another yeah. way of earning money. And so they could exploit that and this new uh, genre of music coming along and new ways, ways of thinking for musicians. But for me, that's when I kind of got out of that working men's club, you know, really getting into playing with bands myself then and playing, starting to play original music. Mm -hmm. And then from then, I got out of that movement came a band that I, I'd call. I was in a band that was playing the working men's clubs and then we thought this is we don't want to be doing this now we were influenced by punk and we turned basically that band into a punk band mm -hmm. and it became known as Fast Breeder mm -hmm. which was named after a nuclear reactor so we thought that was quite controversial <laughs> at the time you know yeah. for us uh, and that band it got the interest of a guy called Tony Wilson mm -hmm who then, Tony Wilson, was a television presenter on mm -hmm. Granada Reports, quite a character, and this was before Factory Records started. Uh -huh. And he started coming along seeing this band, Fast Breeder, when we were play playing in some of the local pubs, and was very encouraging. And the funny thing was then, it was a four-piece band, drums, bass, and two guitars, and the bass player and one of the guitarists decided they were going to form another band and sacked me and the other guitar one of the guitarists a guy called Dave Robottom and that's a big story if you want to ask me about him mm -hmm. at one time mm -hmm. uh, and that was great because then we started the Dorothy Column mm -hmm. which then became the first band on Factory Records and Tony Wilson then got behind that band and we put uh, basically a, a five-piece band together with and brought Vinnie Riley in on guitar who Vinnie Riley was the mainstay, became the mainstay of Dorothy Column. And there's a whole background story with why it ended up just as Vinnie. Mm -hmm. And then another Manchester drummer who's a very good friend of mine called Bruce Mitchell mm -hmm. took the drum seat in that band then. And it, just, it was really just a two piece. Mm -hmm. But that's when I then left that and went off into a kind of a session world, playing with people a lot, in, a lot of the time in Liverpool. So that was another big story there, another kind of chapter in my life. Yeah. Manchester around that time was a considerable hotbed of music activity and probably in many ways has never ceased being a hotbed of music activity. It's always attracted people to the city. And what have you seen as the main differences then between that scene and then the scene that you described that attracted you to Morecambe? Now, I've just remembered what your original question was. <laughs> so I'm going to go back to that. Sorry, yeah, yeah, you. No worries, no because problem. it was about how the industry's changed, mm -hmm. really. So from what I can gather now, Bands get discovered by what their social media following seems to be, uh -huh. not by A&R men going along to gigs and mm -hmm. a word of mouth a lot of the time, mm -hmm. although I'm pretty sure there is still an element of that because there was a band... Before I moved to Morecambe, I was living near Hebden Bridge in West Yorkshire, mm -hmm. and there was a band from that area, you might want to check them out because they're great, called Lounge Society. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard of them. I think I have, actually. Right, well, they... They were excellent. And the, the drummer, he, he, he was a really good player, he, but he came along to me for a few lessons. It didn't last long because the band were just really starting to get on a bit of a roll. So I think he just got on with what he was doing. I don't know where they've got to now. I've not kept touch with them, but 
you know, they seem to be starting playing. They were picked up by some management company in Manchester. Mm -hmm. And I've known, I think they did South by Southwest and things like that, mm -hmm. maybe last year. Uh, okay. So there's still that element of a band can come through. Yeah. How they do it, I don't know, mm -hmm. you know, but it's not like where there used to be a lot of bands would come through. Mm -hmm. I think it's very, very, very few bands can actually break through in a conventional, what I'd call the old fashioned conventional sense. Yeah. So now it just seems to be about the record companies are lazy as anything. I think they've got their back catalogue, they've got their, you know, that's where they make the money. Mm -hmm. And unless somebody's got some huge following on Twitter or X or TikTok or whatever it is, yes. the record companies do nothing to yeah. bring a band up and develop them. They're kind of relying on the artist then to provide that following themselves, home. Yeah, yeah, the, the job's done kind of yeah. thing. And then uh -huh. they'll come in and mop up and, uh -huh. you know, and. There's, there's, there's an industry now where a band and artist can put things out there themselves mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and develop stuff, but you're throwing it out. It's like grains of sand now. It's like this, I think mm. it's something like 60,000 releases a day on Spotify. Mm. So how do you get heard amongst all of that? Absolutely. So there's got to be some other elements mm. And you've got to be very savvy at social media now. Yeah. You've got to be, you know, so there's a whole new industry there. And what challenges have you faced with those online platforms yourself? Because I know you've got quite a nice setup here with regards to your online teaching. I, if I'm honest, I dabble. Mm. I'm, can I swear? Of course you can. I'm shit at it. <laughs> But I try, and I, I try every now and then. I'll have a little resurgence of energy and think I'll do a bit more on YouTube or a bit more yeah. of this. Mm -hmm. So I just put things out every now and then. What happened during uh, COVID and lockdowns, and I couldn't go out and teach or do gigs, I got in touch with a company down in Malvern, actually, and a guy mm -hmm. that's become a very good friend of mine called Andy Guest, who's helped me develop, uh, I got this camera set up and I've had a recording set up at my studio in home anyway, but then I developed this camera set up and I've got a video mixing desk and I started learning to do final cuts. I'm still crap at that, but I can put things and piece things together. Mm -hmm. It's not, uh, you know, oh, it Hollywood quality that I'm doing at the moment, but <laughs> it, it developed, what I, it allowed me to do was keep teaching through COVID because mm -hmm. I've got a four camera set up, so I've got a camera on my hands camera f straight on so people can see me talking to the camera mm -hmm. I've got a camera on my feet so people can see exactly what i'm doing there mm -hmm. and then i've got an overhead cam so people can see how i'm moving around the kit and develop that so what that allowed me to do was keep on teaching and then i started doing uh, a weekly facebook live show mm -hmm. and i must have done i don't know 20 or 30 of those something like that mm -hmm. again it was just i was i was learning on the hoof with that there were some shows where it was absolutely crap because there were certain mics weren't working or certain things and I was like when I was live Andy would phone me up and say this isn't working Chris and I'd be on the phone during a live show trying to fix something uh -huh. and uh, it was it was learning you know on on what sort of doing the, the, the thing and I'm I've not done a live show for a while but I am starting to look to do that again soon now that I've kind of just I've been in this room now for nearly six months uh -huh. I've been 
I've recently closed down my studio in West Yorkshire, literally just in December, so oh. last month. Mm. Uh, I've moved all the equipment over here. So now I've got loads of stuff in boxes. And so I'm really trying to just get everything arranged, what I've got in here, in this room now, mm -hmm. and clear my head and start doing some live shows again. Fantastic. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. I think the idea of, of the fact that you can use online, uh, and although it might be a challenge and a massive learning curve, the fact that you've got that ability and the fact that it now democratizes for people who are starting out, they can literally just set up a couple of cameras or a mobile phone or two in their room and just share with people what they can yeah, do. I yeah. think that is in many ways quite powerful. And I think that uh, the more people that can learn how to do that, the better that will be. Yeah. As you had started out where there was spaces you could go, the working clubs that you could go to, there was the spaces that you could go and gig in. I think as, as time has gone on where maybe the, some of those spaces, they no longer exist or they've closed down. There's a bit of an ebb and flow as to where emerging musicians can go to share their gigs and so I think for the time being maybe online is going to be a way for them really as you say live is where it's at where you can sort of tangibly experience yeah because you've got to have music. stage nerves and things like that you've got to That's overcome it. stage nerves and yeah. some people are not very good on stage mm -hmm. they can be fantastic at home and everything like that but mm -hmm. they get on stage and they just they can't cut it you know not yeah. not through them not having any talent but it's just another psychologically mentally it's hard mm. for people to sometimes get and perform in front of people mm. they can do amazing work at home in a studio and things like that i think that there are still pubs where you can go and see bands but they're not like they used to be mm. and i think it, it, it's a tough world for people again with those types of venues usually like one person mm -hmm. that gets the music mm -hmm. gets the arts wants to support it mm -hmm. and it's the same if you've got a landlord at a pub or a landlady it's one person has a passion for that mm -hmm. and cares about it yeah and that's what that will make that venue work or make that institution work whatever it might be yeah because somebody gets it and it's not about you know uh the funding from councils or you yes. know it's and with pubs if it brings people in the door they're happy with it and if they like the music then mm. it's a win-win there's definitely pubs in Lancaster who will wholesomely support live music and I think with the recent music festivals that have emerged in the area I think there's more and more pubs that now see the value especially post pandemic the value of getting people in getting a community again and I think this building that community back up again yes uh, there's some new venues come on board now with the cantina and obviously we are going to be speaking soon to the musicians co-op they're they've got some money to reinvigorate that rehearsal space that's going to be a space for young people emerging bands to sort of come back together again right. we've got really good local bands and in, in the shape of lovely eggs and massive wagons who have really been spearheading live music again and really helping next generation come through and good links i think still with manchester so the more that uh, lancaster morecambe and the district can strengthen those ties with manchester and other cities and say we are a viable destination for live music and live bands. I yeah, think yeah. that's going to be, we're in early days, I think. Well, there's that. a, I mean, you know what venues there are in uh, Morecambe yourself, mm. the platform. Yes. Now, the platform for me, it generally is putting kind of tribute acts on, majority, uh, yes. you know, and it's not putting original acts on mm -hmm. or, you know, acts that are kind of on a, a, a national circuit. Mm -hmm. But there's a venue called the Alhambra. That's right. Which I, I love it. Mm -hmm. I think it's a fantastic space and it reminds me of the Ritz in Manchester. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've ever been there. No. 
Right, so it's got that great sort of dance floor like they have in the Alhambra. When I first watched in the Alhambra, it was like, wow, this is a great rock and roll venue. And I've been to see a few bands there, for like they put kind of Northern Soul events on there and things like that. Mm -hmm. and so I've seen some really good bands with that. Bands that are touring, doing tours, name bands that could actually, that's a venue that there's a capacity there of about 900. And I don't think there's anything in Lancaster that has that kind of capacity. But on a circuit between Liverpool, mm. Manchester, and going up to Scotland, yeah. there's nothing in yeah. between. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned about the platform before, before, um, because there was a venue just opposite called the Dome that's no longer there. It's going to make way for the new Eden. Right. Um, there's currently a fairground on there every sort of summer and yeah. autumn. Yeah. But the the situation there was the staff from the Dome came, came over to the platform, but the Dome towards its end of its life cycle was attracting bands that because touring is such a now massive part of the record company's plan. But well, it's band, where bands earn the money these yeah, days, generally. Absolutely. So they actually were shipping up bands that were really targeting a younger audience and a more sort of contemporary demographic. So the Arctic Monkeys played there, right. and various other bands as well. But it was, it was short-lived because then the council decided to get rid of the dome and in favour of just focusing everything on the And platform. when was that? That was probably about five years ago. Right, I never I heard of the Dome. Five, six, seven, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. The Dome was the, as far as I understood it from when I was a, when I first arrived here, the Dome was the former kind of swimming, outdoor yes. swimming bath. Yeah, yeah. And then around sort of 97 onwards, when the government then were putting so much money into the arts and education, they had then decided with lottery funding to build and renew a lot of the spaces. So the platform came on board. Over time then the Midland Hotel was then reopened. So the dome was there as a venue, it was about a thousand standing. Wow. And at the same time you had the Winter Gardens and they've really done a lot of work recently to try and reinvigorate that space as a, as a performance venue. You had the Carlton in Morecambe, which I think well, was- Well, the in, Carlton is the Alhambra. Yeah, I was gonna say- It's under that um, name, yeah. It's kind of, uh, it's funny how relationships with buildings, how they've changed over the yes. over the over the years. Yeah. Um, and there's so many spaces that if invested in, would absolutely be, I mean, there, there are larger venues in Morecambe, I would argue, than there are in Lancaster. I and think it, that's the case, yeah. this, uh, well, One of your previous interviewees, Barry Lucas. Yes. They used to, uh, have a bus from Lancaster University to bring students over to that's, what was the Carlton Club. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's right. And apparently it was it was heaving the place yeah. every week, and I'd love to see that happen again. A hundred percent. I think it actually could. You know, mm. so I'm kind of like trying to invest a little bit of time and effort mm. into uh, helping that venue go forward a bit. And you mentioned before the Winter Gardens. Yeah. And that's what that's like a huge old school type theatre, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Now, the problem with that place, for, particularly for bands playing there, is you've got a slanted floor. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can't kind of put dance events on there, particularly, you know, you can dance at an angle, but it's not <laughs> ideal. And it, it, I've seen, like, the Poetry Festival has been on there for the past couple of years, mm. and that was fantastic. I thought mm. that worked really well, but it's, it's still a space that's being worked on and they've got some grant money last year, didn't they? So that's, right. that's really hopefully, yeah. you know, going to develop and come along and get on. The whole thing with Morecambe and the redevelopment of it, helping yeah. that will help as well. We've spoken to Barry in, in a previous episode, but are you ever uh, up at Lancaster Union experienced that when he was promoting bands? No, I mean, I think I've, my memory doesn't, 
work that well sometimes, but I think I definitely played at Lancaster University. Uh-huh. I don't know if Barry was there, cause I think Barry was there till 85 or something. That's right. And yeah. that's 85 is when Simply Red started. Right. So I suspect where our paths didn't cross at that time. I suspect we probably came in and played the university right. in a, some of our earlier gigs before we got onto a bigger circuit, but doing the university circuit. Yeah. We did lots of the universities in 85, 86. And I suspect that Barry had probably just left. What's been your gig highlight as a drummer then? I mean, there's been a few really I suppose I mean there's probably been loads actually uh, you know I've done thousands of gigs uh, well you mentioned before about performance and hours and getting out and I, we did I did a gig once at the it still happens called the Medem Festival you heard of it no it's in France uh, every year I think it's around February and it's when the music industry from all around the world, oh. all the record labels, all the heads of all the record labels mm-hmm. in every country would come to this quite a corporate sort of festival, really, mm-hmm. in Cannes, in France. Okay. And it's the same as the film festival. And now they have a property festival there as well. Mm-hmm. All the, about, built around the same corporate, all the big boys come in from around the world. Mm-hmm. They all have the, the yachts and the fancy hotels and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And in early 1986, uh, Simply Red were invited to play at this Medem Festival. And it was in a, a club there, so maybe three, four hundred people, something like that. But it was all the heads of uh, what was then WEA Records, Warner's Electra Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And we were introduced by Nessui Ertigan. Now, I don't know if you know who the Ertigan brothers are, Nessui and Armit Ertigan. They started Atlantic Records. So they were two Turkish brothers from Turkish family who grew up in America. And they were kind of, I think their family were ambassadors or something like that. So Mm. they have the the diplomatic sort of status almost. They loved blues, soul. So they had people on there if you think about Atlantic Records you mm. think of Aretha Franklin mm. you can think of Led Zeppelin you mm. can go back to all sorts of huge artists that were on Atlantic Records and then Atlantic got part of the conglomerate of War- WEA Warner's Electra Atlantic where they obviously signed up together and when Cynthia Red first signed a record deal it was to Electra which was run by a guy called Bob Krasnow at the time and they're all huge, big-name players in the world of music at that time. Uh, but we, at the Medem Festival, we were introduced by Nessui Ertigan, one of the brothers from the Atlantic Records, who got up on stage and said, and bear in mind, all the heads from the record companies from around the world are there, and said, this is the band you are going to work this year. This band are fantastic, and this is the one we're going to really put our time and effort behind. Wow. And it was like it was wow sort of yeah, moment. What an endorsement. And that was that huge endorsement. And then after that gig, we had a dinner with Nessuvirtigun, mm-hmm. and I was sat next to Pele, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was amazing. <laughs> as you do, <laughs> yeah, as you do, because Pele used to work as an ambassador for WEA Records. Right. Now, the relationship between Nessie Ertigan and Pele was they both love soccer, football, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And also at the dinner was an accountant who worked with Nessie Ertigan and mm-hmm. Pele. Mm-hmm. 
and they were the three people that set up the New York Cosmos, which was like the first soccer team in uh -huh. America. And Pele was behind that. He played for the New York Cosmos. Mm -hmm. Nessie Erskine was obviously one of the investors and there was the accountant there. And they had a 20-year 20 20 year business plan to develop soccer in America. And this was in 1986. So that was quite a memorable gig. Uh -huh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> gigging and balancing that with your drum teaching how do you balance both or is it at the moment you're focused on building um, up the drums? these days and i'm doing more teaching than anything i mean i did a tour it was at the end of uh 2022 with pete wiley and the mm -hmm. mighty war mm -hmm. for anybody that doesn't know story of the blues was one of the big hits for pete wiley which came out in 1982 and i played with pete then 40 years ago mm -hmm. and I did an album with Pete Wiley at the time as well called The Word to the Wise Guy so it was great to do that tour with Pete Wiley but and again it was it was good for me because and it was good for a lot of my students to actually see me on stage going out playing mm -hmm. and you know because sometimes when we're in doing lessons mm -hmm. they'll see me play a little bit but there's not like playing a show and seeing what goes into the whole process yeah yeah I'm very fussy about who and what I will play these days. I'm a snob with it, really. Mm -hmm. I won't do covers bands. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do... I'd rather go out and do, play some jazz stuff or play some Latin music, something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to do any kind of tribute acts or covers or... You are challenged to get your teeth stuck I want something... It. I mean, I, I, I like a lot of that old music, but it's mm -hmm. not something I want to go out and play myself. Yeah. Yeah. Because you've been there and done that. You've yeah. done the covers yeah. bands. And so, yeah. absolutely. Well, I'm sure there'll definitely be bands and definitely be people who will be watching who will be aware of your drum school and be aware that you're here in Morecambe and I'm sure your phone will not stop ringing. Well, we'll see about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I am very fussy. For those who are starting out then in learning to play drums, what attracted you to the drums specifically and what helps you stay motivated it's it's mad really because it's that you know i remember from being a little kid and we'd have the pots and pans underneath the kitchen sink and you know you'd play in the kitchen and i'd, I'd drag the pots and pans out i'd get in the cupboard under the sink and play and hide underneath there but then i'd get out and just hit the pots and pans and it's, it's it sounds like a cliched story but it was that, and I grew up in a family where I was the youngest, so I had two older brothers and an older sister, mm. and they bought records, or my sister did anyway. So in our house in the sort of uh, 60s when I was growing up, there was the Beatles and the Rolling Stones records, and you know, things like The Shadows mm -hmm. or Gene Pitney. Mm -hmm. So I'd hear all these sort of records, and there was one I remember... My sister, I think, it might be one of my brothers, I don't know, but there was the Shadows record called Apache. Okay. Right? But it's basically, it's an instrumental, but the drumming is fantastic on mm. it. And I used to play that record over and over and over and over. And that was before I was even playing drums. Mm. And it was just something fascinated me about it and mm. really just sparked my imagination. And then, you know, in I'd watch TV and I'd see the Stones and the Beatles and this is imagine watching on a black and white television mm -hmm. on you know possibly I think there were maybe two perhaps three channels at the time mm -hmm. I do remember those days <laughs> so it, you know that's it really influenced me massively mm -hmm. and then when I was 15 a mate of mine who lived a few doors down on our street called Adam 
he played guitar and they were what I'd call a showbiz family. His mum was a singer and she did uh, working men's clubs and everything like that. Mm -hmm. And she was quite over the top, really nice woman. And she would sing big sh kind of show hits. And his father used to be a comedian right. in do like doing the London circuit, like the Windmill Theatre in London and things like that when they'd have the strippers on. Mm -hmm. but, all the, but they weren't strippers, they were mm -hmm. naked women that just had to stand still. Right. They weren't the days. I mean, it's a mad story and people yeah. just wouldn't understand it yeah. these days. But he was quite a character. And so he, because of his background in show business, he started getting his gigs. And this is when we were 15 and we started playing in pubs and then he, he got us into working men's clubs and we got an agent and he started getting his gigs. And we'd go around the social clubs, working men's clubs, British legions around Yorkshire. Mm -hmm. We'd go up as far as... Middlesbrough and Newcastle where there was a huge working man tradition with the docks and everything like that yeah. and we'd go up there and this is bearing in mind when, probably when we were about 16 and not at school and we'd spend a week up there and we'd play every night mm -hmm. literally every night mm -hmm. and we'd stay in a and b and uh, Sunday we'd do Sunday afternoon and then we'd do Sunday evening Oh. And Sunday afternoon, we'd even sometimes, if the, the house band couldn't be bothered, we'd back the strippers. Mm -hmm. And this is in the working men's club. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Wow. Oh, these are paid gigs? Yeah. Amazing. I mean, we weren't paid very well, but, you yeah. know, we, we managed to pay for our B&B. We didn't come out particularly with any money whatsoever. Uh -huh. We were out playing every night and schlepping that equipment around yeah. and just being on the circuit, yeah. vans breaking down, pushing... <laughs> in terrible <laughs> transit vans up streets and down streets uh -huh. and it was a learning curve and yeah and yeah. absolutely you learned it by doing didn't you you yeah. got out and you absolutely did yeah, it yeah yeah i mean that's incredible i'm always really interested in um, people's origin stories because my brother similarly was into music and it wasn't the music that was in the household ironically it was music that he had discovered and he was into metal bands and rock bands so red hot chili peppers Metallica, right. shooting into, into American metal bands and rock bands. And he just played and played and played. And over time, because he got so good, he then later started lessons. And then, but because he was visible and because he was in school bands and concert bands and stuff, people recognized and saw him when he was out gigging with those bands and then said, hey, he's really good. Can you come and join our band? So yeah. it was just by being visible, yeah. by doing his thing, yeah. um, that he was was almost earmarked and cherry-picked by other bands to yeah. go and join them. Yeah. And I think that's that's a really fundamental thing because you're Because you're out there doing it yeah. and people see you. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's what happened to me in getting onto kind of a session circuit within Manchester and then within Liverpool as mm. well where people had seen, oh, right, he's out there doing it yeah. and do this. Yeah. And just going back a little bit because this sure. guy I talked about, Adam, when we were like, 14, 15, he played guitar. And we talked about, oh, let's form a band, but I didn't have a drum kit. I didn't even play an instrument. And my dad, where I grew up in Charlton, there was a place called the Irish Club, which still exists to this day and is quite a credible venue th these days in Manchester. But then it was pure sort of Irish background people that would go there. And my dad, I'd said, oh, you know, I'm interested in playing drums. And he said, oh, well, I know. There's a guy I know at the Irish club. So eventually he managed to get a name of somebody. Mm -hmm. So I went and had some drum lessons. There was mm -hmm. a music shop in Manchester called Stock and Chapman's, which isn't there now. Mm -hmm. It's where they built the Metropolitan University on top of it. Oh, right. It was a huge music shop because it was also, I think, because it was near the Royal Northern College of mm -hmm. Music. So mm -hmm. it probably serviced that side of 
classical music world. Yeah. Yeah. But in the basement, there was rooms with different seats in. Somebody, somebody would be doing saxophone, somebody doing piano, somebody doing bass, somebody doing drums. So I started going along there for drum lessons and I think it was 50 pence a lesson or something like that. Oh, wow. <laughs> Might have been a pound, but you know, it was like, and that was interesting because I, literally I didn't touch a drum kit for three months. Mm. I was just on a practice pad. And I yeah. think I had Buddy Rich's drum rudiments, which this guy was teaching me from. And I had to kind of like prove that I wanted to do this. And all I had at home was a table and a pair of sticks. Mm -hmm. And that was it. I didn't have a practice pad even then. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, I kind of got onto the kit. And he was he was great because he was, he was kind of from a jazz background. Not a name player or anything like that. Sadly, he died of cancer quite young. So uh, I didn't continue lessons with him. But it got me started. Mm -hmm. And then it was just getting out. And because I was listening to music all the time as well, you yeah. know, and all different types of music from whether it be soul, whether it's Jimi Hendrix, whether it's Led Zeppelin, whether it's the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And it's that, that ability to listen and yeah. pick up, like you're saying about your brother playing along to things. Yes. And ultimately the passion, building that passion for it, because anyone can have a goal. Just coming back to where you are now here with the drum school coming full circle, you are now going to be able to provide access to so many people yeah. to access the instruments and to experience that and to follow your story and to, to be a part of that. Yeah, I think yeah. that yeah. you've got to have passion, you've got to get out, you've got to give it a go yeah. be, and be yeah. visible and do it. And yeah. the thing for us, we weren't doing it to make money. I think no. a lot of people kind of enter these businesses these days to make money. Mm -hmm. For me, that's arse over tip. Really. Yeah. It's like we were in it because we just love music and we wanted yeah. to get out and play. And like I say, when we did all those clubs in Yorkshire or the northeast. We were just out enjoying ourselves, playing, getting mm. in front of an audience. Mm. And it wasn't about, oh, I've got 200 quid this week, because we never got 200 quid. We'd be lucky if we got 25 quid or something yeah. like that, literally. <laughs> to cover the petrol. That would be a good fucking week. <laughs> yeah. 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 We hope we've just scratched the surface, haven't we? But yeah. thank you so much. Thank you. I will talk with you for part two. Thank you very much. Cheers. All right.